This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. We'll be able to have a whole show. We won't have to talk about race in America. One day, maybe. I don't know, but that day is not today, unfortunately. But fortunately for us, we have someone here with us to help us unpack a bit of what life is like or evolving into as we enter what seems to be the weirdest phase of my adult, my entire black life. I don't understand what's happening. I'm lying. I actually do understand what's happening, and that's what scares me to death in many ways. Uh, joining me right now is journalist Brianna Holt, who has spent years covering identity, race, and culture for outlets like the New York Times, GQ, The Cut, and more. And now she invites readers to unlearn their biases and expand their worldviews in her debut book, In Our Shoes, on being a black woman in not-so-post-racial, in, you know, air quotes, America. The memoir on in essays explores what it means to be a black millennial woman in America today, the stereotypes and preconceived notions that often shape that experience, and how we might dismantle some of the systems and structures that are in place to afford black women and girls a safer, freer, and more equitable future. Brianna Holt, it is such a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I uh, unfortunately thought we were going to have a happier topic to lead into before we got to you, but we've been discussing the case of the young 16-year-old brother who was shot for after ringing a doorbell uh, to pick up going to a home that he thought his brothers and sister, his uh, siblings were at, and it just really epitomizes for me what is happening right now. And it's a classic example of just the craziness that our kids are having to navigate, that young people are having to navigate. And your book, I think, is so timely because it's talking about what Black women and girls are facing in this time. And it seems to me that the, every day there's just another blow to our collective health and an overall sense of safety. Talk with us about what inspired this book for you and what you hope readers will be able to take away from it. Yeah, I was inspired to write this book when I was in quarantine with my mom um, during the height of the pandemic. And I was doing a lot of race writing, um, writing around Black identity and culture and just the Black experience during that whole summer 2020 um, reemergence of Black Lives Matter. And I realized when I was reading the drafts aloud to my mom, um, who is an older Black woman who is a boomer of the boomer generation, um, she wasn't really aware of the terms that I was saying out loud in these articles, terms like virtue signaling, misogynoir, um, Black fishing, et cetera. And so mm -hmm. even cultural appropriation, she didn't really understand what I meant by that in the modern age. And so I started realizing, you know, there is such a need for the experiences that young Black women um, are facing today. I think a lot of them are kind of camouflaged behind Black women wins and triumphs that we have with, you know, Serena mm. Williams um, being the best tennis player, the best gymnast is a Black woman, Simone Biles, um, one of the biggest pop stars is a Black woman, Beyonce, we've had a Black president, Black VP, etc. You know, it's funny as I'm hearing you, the phrase you just used, that a lot of our trauma or the pains that we're experiencing is camouflaged behind our wins. Can you tease that out a bit for us? Because we, we sit in this space where we have to balance wanting to celebrate black excellence, black amazement. And quite frankly, I think we should also celebrate black mediocrity. Um, just the fact that we can survive. Like I think excellence is great, but we can also be average and, and that should also have its own space. But a lot of what we experience, you said, is camouflaged behind our wins. Can you tease that out for us just a bit? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, like in the subtitle of my book, it's this idea that we live in this post-racial America um, because of these wins, because of we have had a Black president, we have a Black VP, etc. And so it really presents this false ideology that, oh, Black women are thriving. They're, they're dominating every sport. They're dominating the entertainment industry. They're dominating music. They're in the White House. They're in political spaces. Um, and it makes people believe that the average Black woman is thriving. But then when we look at the stats of different issues that we're facing in the United States, one example being maternal mortality, um, the rate is four to five times higher for Black women than that of white women. And so um, Serena Williams, a Black woman being the best tennis player, doesn't necessarily have a positive impact on my conditions, my livelihood, et cetera. And because mm -hmm. it's camouflaged, when we push it away and say, oh, Black women are thriving, then we neglect their issues. We neglect um, the negative conditions and the obstacles that we're facing. And it also kind of presents, uh, pushes this idea that our issues are in our head. It's like, why are you complaining? Black women are doing wow. so well. Wow. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, off, I have actually heard from even within our community that we should focus more on other segments of the population because with Black women, y'all have it together. Y'all employed more, y'all go to school more. And I, when you said camouflage behind our success, it's like, yeah, we might be navigating this system to a, with a more sense of nimble flexibility than other segments of our population, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing better. And I think I, I really appreciate your use of that language, helping us to, to sort of parcel that out. But you, you talked about something with regards to the power of language as well, with regards to how your mother was interpreting terms like massage noir, uh, cultural, cultural appropriation. Why does it matter that we have a new frame for things? Why does, why does the language evolving in a way that can be speak to more of the nuances of our experiences as a black woman why does that matter for what we're experiencing right now yeah it matters that the language is evolving because the racism the racism is evolving it isn't mm. as blatant as my mother who's in the boomer generation where she um experienced being in segregated spaces or my grandmother experienced being in segregated spaces um or being the first black woman to go to this school bus to this school etc um, we're dealing with a different um, evolved type of racism. And so it's important that we have labels to define what those experiences are like, where they can really just fall between the cracks. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where all these terms are coming from. I think the, the term cultural appropriation isn't necessarily new, but my mom's idea of cultural appropriation was kind of like from her time, oh, Elvis Presley would go listen to black musicians and steal songs and um, you know, have them write, have him have them write songs for him and steal their sound, and that's cultural appropriation. Whereas for black women today, we're dealing with a cultural appropriation where um it's very much just our our appearance, our physicality, where wearing braids, you know, to a job interview might be deemed unprofessional for me, yet I have to get online and on social media and see in TV and film and see non-black women reflected. Um, wearing braids and and popularizing it, making it fashionable, et cetera. What are some of the lessons that you think we, let's start with within our community first. I like talking to us first. What are some of the lessons within our community that you think we need to know that we will get from the book that we should, we kind of should know, but for whatever reason, just don't. And I'm talking specifically about us. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for us more, most specifically, there's a chapter in my book about colorism. Um, yeah. And I think we're actually seeing in a lot of ways, I mean, since I, I'm 28 now, when I first got on Twitter, I felt like colorism was running rampant online. 
I see it a lot less often, but I think colorism still exists in many ways. Maybe it's not existing in the conversations that we're having online, um, but colorism exists within families. A lot of time, it's something that people um, reject the idea, believe that colorism isn't even real. I know on some keyboards, mm -hmm. I think I was when I was writing my book in Google Docs, uh, the word colorism kept coming up underlined because wow. it wasn't familiar with the, the term, the phrase. Um, and I also think of what I didn't know when I was doing my research is I always thought of colorism in the sense of dating, like someone having a preference maybe for light-skinned women over dark-skinned women or something like that. I didn't realize um, the violence and the criminalization behind colorism, that dark-skinned mm. people receive longer jail sentences, that dark-skinned children are more likely to be put in detention, um, alternative school, et cetera, receive some type of um, discipline than light-skinned children, that dark-skinned people make less money than light-skinned people. I was just shocked to see how colorism is also so systemic um, outside mm. of our community and yeah. to see how it really is the little sister or the little brother of racism. Oh, I love that. The little sister, or little brother of racism. We have um, been really privileged to have Dr. Sarah Webb come on this show several oh. times this year. And you know, she's amazing. And her whole platform on colorism healing, I think is so important for this time. And, and as you said, we don't often realize that it's, it's not just about your personal preferences. And again, I think we should interrogate the politics of our lust and, and the politics of our desire. Like we don't come to a place of desiring something without having that desire informed by <clears throat> the society around us. Oh, look, there's a frog in my throat. I think the devil don't want me to say what I'm about to say. Um, <laughs> so we, we often like have this idea. <laughs> we often have this idea that colorism is something that other people do to us without recognizing that it is also something that we participate in. And it is the it can be an internal community's embrace of racist ideology that can also really help to validate how the external community sees us. And so thinking about the violence that comes from that, the increased criminal criminality, the increased challenges with being forced into the school to prison pipeline. Our prisons didn't get populated with black people by accident, and they didn't get populated with more richly melanated black people by accident either. And so I think that's a hugely important point. And, and so when it comes to some folks in the other communities, who need to get their hands on this book. What are some of the lessons that they need to learn as a result of what you've put together here? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons, um, and just going back to um, Ralph Yarl, I think other people need to be more aware of adultification bias. I kind of start my book off with talking about adultification bias, which is this bias mostly towards Black children by adults that judge them and view them as older and more, and more mature than they actually are. And so in the case of Ralph, Lor mm -hmm. Ralph um, Yarrow, the 16 year old black boy teenager who was shot um, by a white homeowner, I saw in an article, in a CNN article, um, that in the probable cause statement, Lester, the shooter, um, told investigators that he was scared to death by Jarl's size and his inability to defend himself at age 84. Um, and so, you know, seeing photos of Jarl's size and just him coming up to the door, um, you know, the door wasn't, it wasn't like the door was open or anything like that. There is this huge sense of adultifying of Black children that happens and leads to violence, harm, and sometimes death. Um, mm. Outside of situations like that involving guns, adultification bias is more likely to put young Black girls in detention. Um, they are judged more 
they're judged more harshly than their white counterparts in school settings. Adultification bias is seen to start as early as the age of five. When you think about the age of five, you're in preschool. Mm. Um, so it, it says a lot yeah. about the teachers and the staff um, who are working in this establishment judging these kids as such. But also adultifying Black girls leads to the hypersexualization of Black girls. An example of seeing maybe like a young teenage Black girl wearing shorts and then seeing a non-Black girl um, or, or white girl wearing the same shorts, but hypersexualizing the Black girl as fast or dressing grown or dressing too old for her age when they have on the same exact outfit. Um, and so that's mm -hmm. one of the first things that I start off talking about in my book. But I also type, um, I dive into being hypersexualized, misogynoir, um, how to be a better ally, the difference between performative action and actual action, um, and just the experiences mm. of Black women and Black girls when it comes to medical settings, the ways that we are often neglected um, and are often just left to fend for ourselves, all the way to talk about um, microaggressions that exist within the workplace and how microaggressions aren't actually micro if an aggression leads to altering your mental health and your stress levels and your blood pressure and leads Ooh. to, um, you know, negative medical conditions long-term. Basically I say how micro is I, an aggression that can alter your health, you know? Right. Oh, I really like that because it feels like microaggressions are some of the ones that we, we experience every single day. If you're in an environment where that can happen, particularly if you're being, if you're experiencing this in your workplace, it's something that is happening every single day. It's weathering you every single day and every single day you're taking it home and having to deal with the negative impacts on your mental health, your physical health and the stress and the toll that that takes. I like that. How micro is it really? If it's killing you slowly, sis, come on, let's have that conversation. But I want to exactly. get to, you said performative versus active action. Can you define, because I'm sure there's folks in the audience who are like, what do you mean by performative versus act, actual action? Can you just tease out that dichotomy for us a bit? Yeah, I think during the summer of 2020, um, at least the conversation amongst me and my Black friends, we were wondering, is this a moment or a movement? And the reason why we were hesitant mm. to think that it was probably a moment and not a movement is because we have seen many times how um, our supporters, our allies, our friends will be very performative online, but we are having a different experience with them in person. Um, of all my non-Black friends who posted a Black square, I will also say I have some of those friends um, are dating people who vote completely differently than them, dating people that have different beliefs towards them, dating people who they typically mm. wouldn't bring around their Black friends, aren't willing to challenge their families or have tough conversations um, with their family or friends or loved ones about race, et cetera, and often really just um, tap into complacency the same way that they say people who vote differently than them decide to be complacent. And so I really challenge readers to really like dig into their own biases and stop with the self-labeling. It's so easy for us all to label ourselves as liberal, progressive, leftist, um, accepting, and really ask, would the people around you, the Black women around you, have that same opinion of you? And do you have mm -hmm. actionable points to suggest to show that you have been actually a progressive person, not just the way you think, but the way that you act? I think a lot of people get stuck on the way that they think, and they stop mm -hmm. at this very basic level of, I know what's right, and I know what's wrong. Okay, great. But how are you implementing that into your lifestyle? How are you implementing that in the way that um, you challenge your friends and the people around you? That's a good point, because just because you might know something is morally wrong, if you're going along with it, what good is your acknowledgement 
internally that this thing might be a, a problem. There has to be some alignment with your actions and the way that you are seeing the world, if, if you're true. Like, and I think that really helps us to dis distinguish between what is performative. It's so easy to change your profile image um, as opposed to actually being willing to go and put your body in a space where you are confronting uh, this, the power of the state. And not even just in terms of protests, like on, on the job, like at the city council mm -hmm. meeting, like are you speaking up for the, the things that you know are going to make this a more just and equitable community? Or are you speaking up for the things that are not, or are you just silent altogether and by default choosing the side of power? Talk to us about the conversations Black women in your generation are having. I'm a zennial, so I'm like at the very end of Gen X, and like the very mm -hmm. beginning, like my little sister who was like four years younger than me, I think she's properly a millennial. So talk with us about the conversation that millennial women are having about issues with, related to, to incidences like the shooting of, of Ralph Yarl. Talk to us about what you're communicating to each other about how you are showing up in this moment to, to fight for racial justice and equity and, and, and reproductive justice and all the other isms that we're facing right now. Give us a, a bit of a tenor of the conversation that you're hearing among your sister friends. Yeah, um, within my cohort and within my friend group, I am seeing a lot of conversations around rejecting labels um, that were placed upon us um, previously that we are realizing are not necessarily compliments, but are kind of um, mm -hmm. allowing people to dismiss us. One of those labels being strong. Um, I think the Ooh. idea that Black women are strong can be different depending on who is saying it to you. One thing that my friends and I say is like, if another black woman is calling me strong, we see it as a compliment. Um, when a non-black person or even maybe a black man is calling us strong, it is typically in a situation um, of turmoil or stress where usually somebody would have needed support or help or aid. And instead of mm -hmm. somebody offering that support or help or aid, they let us know that we're strong and that we'll persevere and that we'll get through it and that we're resilient. And so that just it neglects us, it dismisses us, it dismisses what we're going through and kind of places us in the position of taking care of yourself. And so I think um, what I talk about in my book is like I did interview some black women of older generations and the way that they viewed the word strong was like this rite of passage and strong is something you should wanna be and strong yeah. is you know this, this great thing, this great label this compliment, whereas we are starting to realize that um, being called strong doesn't result in any help or aid for us. And we want, and mm. yes, we are strong. Black women definitely have persevered and are resilient and pushed through a lot of things I do every day in my daily life, but I want to choose to be strong. I don't want to be told to be strong by someone who could offer me support or help. Um, mm. Another conversation that I'm seeing we're having a lot is about just protecting our peace and protecting our space. And for young black women, we are lucky for that to look different than um, older black women have been able to. We, we have the option, a lot of us to work remote now. And a lot of us have found um, that that is a very good way to protect our peace. We do not have to be in an environment every day from nine to five where we are experiencing microaggressions, being tone police, um, you know, having the helicopter boss over you, watching you more hardly um, than they are watching, you know, your white counterparts. Um, so just having those options and how having those options have kind of pushed us to just like, let that play out in our life, um, deciding to, you know, I don't know, break relationships with friends and family members sometimes and um, romantic relationships that do not serve us or do not value us or see us as, you know, at least equal. Um, or provide us support and aid. We're really just rejecting like a lot of the social norms, um, the things that we have written off as normal in the past that we are realizing aren't helping us. And I think the reason why we're doing that 
is because we realize um, our, our conditions aren't changing. I'm not going to um, whitewash myself or code switch in an office anymore if I am realizing that we are still one of the most underpaid demographics of women. If it's not helping mm. me rise up the corporate ladder, if I saw my mom code switch and she and I are having the same experience of being underpaid with this huge age mm. gap between us. So we're at a point where we're like, okay, whatever. Like I'm showing up unapologetically as myself because I'm realizing it doesn't work. Girl, I feel like I'm proud. Like I <laughs> feel like I'm proud of you, sis. Like, yes, everything you are saying right now. And the idea of choosing to be strong to me says I'm choosing to be strong as needed, right? It's kind of like the word resilience. Like I hate when people are like, black people are so resilient. You're not supposed to stay resilient. You're only supposed to be resilient in the temporary circumstance that is causing you to have to be in that space. But we have to live in a space of resilience. It's not a compliment. The idea of choosing to be strong as needed, recognizing that our parents code switched in these workspaces. They had an ultimate, a huge pay gap. We are in these spaces now with a huge pay gap. We're not going up the, the corporate ladder code switching anymore more than they did so why don't we just show up as our authentic black selves with our mm -hmm. authentic look and be able to dismiss what that the burden of having to to not only wear a mask but to dress in a dress and to pr purport ourselves in a way that is completely foreign to us that is designed to make white people comfortable but does not inure to our benefit especially when we saw entire generations of people do that before i love how you said that and it feels like you're saying it in a way that respects what our elders went through but recognizes that we it's time for us to evolve in the way weaponry that we're using, how we're arming ourselves, how we're disarming ourselves and what we're choosing to embrace. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the book. Where can people get a copy and how can they follow you and continue to get more insight that you share in all the outlets that you write for? Yeah, my book is available anywhere books are sold, Barnes and Noble, um, Target, Amazon, online and in store, etc. Um, my website is briannaholt.me. Um, Instagram, I'm at Brianna Holt and Twitter, I'm at Brianna N Holt um, for my middle name. And yeah, I post all of my work, all of the articles that I write um, on my website. So thank you. I, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and putting the time into this book to help us understand what we need to know in order to see the world through the eyes of our millennial black women and to learn the lessons that you all have to teach those of us who are not quite in that category. <laughs> really appreciate it and appreciate you. Thank you, sis. Thank you for coming by and for sharing some time with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.